Hello, welcome to I Could Make That, a podcast about creativity. I'm Ashley Sellers. And I'm Ann Kilzer. We are both makers, creators, artists, and we wanted to make this podcast to kind of share about creativity and motivate ourselves to be better crafters and artists and also hopefully inspire others. So let's take a few minutes and introduce ourselves. Ashley, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Ashley. I'm a mixed media and fiber artist. I very recently jumped into what kind of really dove headfirst into fiber arts, uh, weaving, spinning my own yarn and, you know, dyeing it. Um, But my initial love was drawing um, and illustrative artwork. So um, my favorite mediums are um, watercolor and ink. Um, recently I've been branching out into acrylic work and kind of trying to juggle um, that side of my creativity and the fiber artsy side of my creativity. So my background is in traditional printmaking. I have an art degree and I studied silkscreen, lithography, letterpress, intaglio, all, all that sort of stuff, relief printing. Uh, Lately, I've been working in textile arts, from fabric dyeing to surface pattern design to weaving and spinning. Um, I've always been a crafter and a maker. Um, I guess I consider craft and art as kind of highly connected. And my my family too, they are all makers. My dad does woodworking and gardening. My mom also does gardening and sewing, uh, embroidery, all sorts of things. So. Um, that was just kind of a thing that my family did and I really grew up feeling like I I love to make things and I love to make things with my hands. I like exploring how math and art connect and I like making things a lot. So we'll have a whole podcast about all the things we make and can make. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, going back to the point about Uh, making art a larger part of our lives. I think that it does take um, a lot of bravery to start to make art um, the center of their lives. And I'm moving into that phase right now. I feel like talking this out with you and developing a community of people that we can connect to that hopefully connect to what we are saying can help me. And I want to um, help others on their artistic crafty makery journey. <laughs> Definitely. I remember a time when I first moved to, well, I should say we both live in Austin, Texas, or in the Austin, Texas area. When I first moved to Austin nine years ago, I came here for my PhD program in computer science, and I pretty much, after you know studying art in college and computer science, I just gave it up for pretty much three and a half years did not do a lot of creative stuff. And I felt my life was pretty lacking. And so in the last few years, I've been working hard to get it back. And really, I've kind of figured out how to make it, how to balance a day job and these creative hobbies. And I really would love to help empower other people to do the same, because I think there's something really human about creation and something really cathartic about making stuff. It's what we're here for. It's one of my favorite artists says that it's our birthright. 
Tamara Laporte. She says that it is our birthright as humans to be creative, however that manifests for us and however we decide to pursue it. And that's what I really want to be focusing on in the next few years of my life. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about why we chose the name I Could Make That and what that means. I think it has two meanings. The first one is... I have a really bad habit of walking through stores, especially around winter, because I'm a fiber artist, pointing at all of the knitted, crocheted, woven items. Like, oh, I, I could make that. Mm-hmm. And it's pretentious. Like, I didn't make that. Like, I didn't make that. I'm not selling it. But I think that I could do a better job, which in many cases is probably true. But it's like, it's kind of like when you go to an art museum or somebody goes to an art museum and they see the modern art and they're like, well, I could have done that. It's like, yeah, but you didn't do it. You didn't do that. Yeah, I've seen this too as a, a, a person who's vended at craft fairs. I have a small fabric dyeing business that I it's called Cat Bacon Creative, plug for my tiny, minuscule <laughs> business. But I, I've gone to craft fairs and people are like, oh, tie-dye, I could make that. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's, it's first of all, it's, it's actually ice dyeing, but don't worry. Uh, and also, I don't know, it's kind of a, well, screw you. You know, I just, it's not a very kind thing to say. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a better thing would be to say like, oh, it's fun to make tie-dye. I like doing tie-dye. But to kind of say, hey, I'm not willing to pay for your stuff because I could do this myself, devalues what you're doing. It can devalue what you do. It kind of simplifies and misunderstands mm-hmm. that. And I think, yeah, there can be kind of a, an unfortunate edge to, to saying it. With the Fine Art Museum, mm-hmm. a lot of people will say, well, my kid could make that. And I don't think they really understand, you know, that sometimes, oh, you see a painting and it's just a red painting well if you look closely it's not usually just red it's i'm trying to think of this forget the artist but when i went to the moma in san francisco years ago there were a lot of large canvases that were pretty much monochromatic however upon closer inspection there was a lot of gradient and you know the edges were treated differently and just applying that paint to a nine foot tall canvas is no small feat mm-hmm. so it's it's a little dismissive i think it comes from a place of misunderstanding yeah and the whole thing about like oh my kid could do that you, like not only are you invalidating the artist you're also insulting and being dismissive of the inherent creativity of childhood mm-hmm. like so, so basically you're just being a giant asshole to two different groups of highly creative individuals. Yeah. Well, we don't want to make a podcast about giant assholes so yeah. much as we want to... There's an, I think there's another meaning of I could make that, which is the ambitious, hey, empowering, you know, hey, I could do this. I can make this. Mm-hmm. And that's... The, I think there's a real good thing in there where you aspire to create. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, it's good to not devalue other people in the process, but... You know, if if we all waited to get manufactured things from, you know, overseas or wherever, if we all waited for our things to be made in factories, we wouldn't, you know, people really, the, the reason why sites like Etsy exist is people desire handmade, created stuff. And people either desire to do it themselves or to get it from someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's just more authentic. Yeah. So I think taking it from 
I could have made that to I can make that mm. I want to make that taking it from being dismissive and uh, tearing yourself and other people down um, and frankly not actually making anything to feeling empowered to create and uh, centering your life around creative pursuits whatever they are yeah I think that's awesome I think that's what this um, is about I think uh, there's a second part of the I can make that the empowering aspiring that I think we've all fallen victim to which is taking on a project that you did not size correctly <laughs> or maybe buying a lot of craft supplies before you finish your other crafts I think we all have some some project on the shelf mm -hmm. that's been sitting there for a while I'd like to talk a little bit about my my dear mother um, everyone in my family is very creative and very much into making handmade stuff and I think I'm really thankful to have learned and gotten inspiration from them. Uh, my mom, I remember, I remember in the 90s seeing this cross stitch she was working on of geese that was unfinished. And I asked her about it and she said, oh, well, I started that when I was pregnant with your brother. My brother was born in 1986 and, you know, she didn't finish it was coming back to it in the early 90s. I asked her about it a couple weeks ago, mentioning we were doing a podcast, and she said, yeah, it just never got finished. <laughs> She's not into geese anymore. <laughs> it's okay. I love you, Mom. But it's, you know, I think it's an example of a project that you start and then you lose momentum on. And I've certainly done it. Yeah. I, I've definitely gone to Joanne's or an art store and bought new things while I have other projects that are still on the shelf. Um, maybe not for 30 years, but you know, I'm younger. I'm sure they will get there. You have time to so get there. So I have time to get there. Get to um, mom's level. Yeah. We, I want to talk a little bit about, one of the things I'd like to talk about with the podcast is how do you get unstuck? Mm -hmm. Do you really want to finish that goose cross stitch? Maybe, and how to get unstuck and how to build momentum. Alternatively, Maybe you're just really over geese and it's time to let go. Maybe we can even talk about studio organization or where to donate your old craft supplies when you're like, I'm just not into it anymore. I'm just, I'm so over geese. Yeah, I like all of those ideas. I think that people get stuck for a variety of reasons. I have a lot of symptoms of adult ADD. It was a diagnosis I received in the past. I do suffer from depression. I know a lot of really creative people do. And at one point I'd love to explore the myths surrounding depression and mental illness and creativity. Oh, if I, if I heal myself, I'm going to lose my spark. I'm not going to be creative or artistic anymore. But I also think that trying to be an artist while dealing with these things, you can get stuck. You can lose, lose momentum in projects because all you can do is sit on the couch in a giant nest and watch Miyazaki movies for like three weeks and then you just don't finish anything. But I think that when when you're dealing with these things and you you lose momentum, there are a lot of cyclical shame thoughts that occur. Mm -hmm. And then you don't pick something up because you feel like, oh, I already failed at it. So I'd like to explore the different ways that people get stuck, not just because of mental illness, but because of, like you said, you know, just passing over that interest. You don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Or even just sometimes I forget that I have this stuff because in my prior residence, I rented a second bedroom to use an art studio, but I was very disorganized and it ended up more as a storage room. And so if you don't have a space set aside for your arts and crafts, or if you don't 
make that space accessible, yeah. you will lose things, you will forget things, and you'll be like, oh, why do I have all this? Oh, I have know? a perfect example. I, uh-huh. My art studio was amazing. It was perfection. I'm a big proponent of, of leaving all, getting all of your art supplies out. Take them out of the boxes, use them. They're not there to be perfect and pretty. They're there for you to use them. So I had everything out pretty decently organized, but I randomly got into, I, I blame you, you're my fabric enabler, but I mm-hmm. randomly got into dyeing and spinning and got this influx of new supplies that I didn't have a place for. They're just sitting mm-hmm. in the middle of my art studio and I'm so intimidated by like going in there and reorganizing everything. Like it just bringing all this stuff and it blew up my spot. And now mm-hmm. I I haven't been creating it with nearly the same productivity that I was yeah. before. Yeah, I think I've had a similar explosion of, I've been working on some elaborate costuming things and I was recently on medical leave from work due to some surgery, so my place is really messy now, and it's like, it's good that I'm actively using it for crafts, but I need to kind of come back and tidy it just to <laughs> just to find things again, because I'm like, where is my where is my embroidery project that I was, I'm working on so many different things and they're all in different places. Mm-hmm. Like, where's my Star Trek joke fan art? Maybe I could just say I have a lot of birds in flight. <laughs> I mean, we can I can edit this part out, but I think there's room to talk about our inspirations, and I would love to have an episode about fan art mm-hmm. and uh, the different forms that it can take. Maybe even going so far as to explore like copyright laws. Yeah, an artist I really like um, has some pretty, I think, pioneering views on copyright. She doesn't copyright mm-hmm. any of her work because her philosophy is that because she's creating with inspiration, coming from the world coming from culture which is defined as uh being propagated by humans Mm -hmm. she's not creating in a vacuum there's context behind everything that she does and therefore it belongs just as much to the world as it does to her she knows that that's not a view for everyone but she thinks that sharing her work and not putting a copyright on it invites collaboration and I really like where she's coming from with yeah, that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So I would love to explore that side of recreation, um, copying, fan art, um, everything fan art adjacent. I like it. I like that you might get something that would never exist had you not shared the original work. There can be some mm-hmm. really awesome things that come through creation. Totally. And I think that along the lines of copying, I'd love to talk about the idea that people starting out with visual art have to make the like they just have to pull these perfect um completely original completely imaginative technically botless works of art out of their fucking asses like with no context not copying not borrowing like there's a book from i think somebody who actually lives here is at austin cleon it's called steal like an artist it talks Mm. about how works can be derivative and still be original um so i'd love to talk more about that and busting those myths that uh, when you're learning how to draw you can't copy other people's work i really have been inspired recently by seeing inside of professional artists sketchbooks Mm -hmm. i got to meet adam vicaro at south by southwest and do a hand lettering workshop he's a professional what do you, it's hand lettering it's not calligraphy but it's where you draw text so he does this mm-hmm. he's a, I guess professional designer but I got to go to this three hour workshop and 
he showed everyone in the inside of his sketchbook, and this is really powerful in the age of Instagram where you put out a, a very polished face to the world. Yeah, that exactly. sketchbook was sloppy, mm-hmm. and it was honest, and it looked like something that I would draw in my sketchbook, and that was kind of affirming. I've been yeah. seeing more people will open up their sketchbooks, and to see that that first draft is scribbles, mm-hmm. but it's how you polish it that turns it into this amazing work of art. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's really empowering and humanizing to see that process because if you just see the end result, if you just see the beautiful Instagram mm-hmm. finished product that's polished and pushed out for social media, it feels intimidating. It feels impossible. I and love a lot that of people, point. so many people give up. I, I honestly, here's an idea that I came up with when I was eight years old and like the good one at art in my school. The only reason I was good is that I didn't quit. Mm-hmm. I really felt like my classmates around me, they would get frustrated, they would get angry, and they would say, my thing doesn't look like Anne's, I'm going to give up. And then they would just give up. And I I don't really think it's, I don't really think art or craft is a thing you're born with, I think it's a thing you cultivate. And I've seen my, my drawing teacher freshman year turn people that were not art majors, that were very intimidated, but had to get a fine art credit turn everybody into a competent drawer by the end of the semester. It's amazing how much power art teachers have over their students. Yeah. I mean, I can't count how many uh, people I've spoken to who say, well, I, I can't draw, or this is the first face I've drawn in 30 years. Because when I was in high school, uh, my, artist, my art teacher told me that I would never be an artist or they told me that my work wasn't realistic or enough, enough, or my work was too perfect. It's amazing how just the smallest comment from an art teacher during those formative wow. years can convince people that this isn't something that they can do. When I think, I actually disagree with you that, it, that art isn't something that we're born with. I think it's something we, bor- we are born with and something that we can cultivate. I see. I guess what I mean by we're not bo- born with it is, I don't think I was born as a sort of golden child that has this yeah. gift that other people don't have but maybe we all are born with an intrinsic need to create need to create yeah, yeah and totally we can that. cultivate that or not but i think part of it is well this sounds very horatio alger but i think some of it is believing in yourself and some of it is not giving up but yeah having a, a superior or somebody over you discouraging you that can be a big i mean there's studies that shown if you tell people they're not going to do well on something, they won't perform as well. So I think teachers, parents, anyone in an authority role has this position of power to inspire and guide people rather than trying to shame them or stifle their creativity. Projecting their expectations of what a perfect artist is and should be. Yeah, I, I think that the people who make it through those experiences and wind up pursuing degrees in, in art... We have Truffle, the cat, visiting us now. Are you making biscuits? She's, she's making biscuits. She can make that. Oh, uh, we love you, Truffle. We're going to have to upload photos of Truffle to the blog. We might. We still have to figure out our blog. But you're a chubby bunny. Oh, we are. We are cat crafters. So we will probably do an episode entirely on cats and cat-related crafts. Um, I am actually taking a craftsy course right now, and by taking, I mean I bought it when it was on sale, and I watched ten minutes of it. So, it's it's a work in progress. I'm taking a craftsy course on watercoloring animals, 
and I will share that link on our blog when we get our blog up because I would I would love to document my my progress with that, to see that and show people that I'm <laughs> <laughs> I I think she can't decide where to where She's to make massaging them. a pillow off the couch at this point uh, for for those who are not in the She room. came for my shoulder yeah. realized it wasn't well it's a little fluffy but what I'm seeing right now is a black long-haired cat with green eyes. Moody is, green eyes. That is slow blinking and uh, aggressively needing a purple pillow. I would love to see this cat watercolored. Or watercolor of this cat. I don't think the cat would appreciate water. We like cats. And we're going to talk about cat crafts. Ashley, you wanted to talk about a craft project you've been working on. Oh yeah, my chicken crafts. Chicken crafts. I like it. Yeah, so we just became chick parents. I know, I know. We got our first five chicks. They are Silkies. They are Margaret Atwood, Frida Kahlo, Leonora Carrington, Emily Bronte, and, well, there was Sylvia Plath, but we think that she's a rooster, so I think she's going to be called Silvio. Um, Are your chickens going to be creators writers crafters yeah they we are very inspired by strong women artists um (laughs) of of the 20th century i love it and we yeah so we're building a coop in our backyard right now um it's called the studio and i just chose the color palette uh we started building it we've started painting it it is adorable we should be done this weekend and then i think in a couple of weekends we'll probably have a housewarming party for them. Nice. Um, we're planning on making some edible decorations and making them some party hats out of paper. You can take like paper and like elastic band. So I'm gonna have to like measure their little heads. But I have to wait until they're ready because silkies get hats on the top of their heads. These really fluffy tall hats. Not like real hats. It's like their fur. They grow their, their own hats. Yeah, they grow their own hats. They've evolved from dinosaurs to hat growers and they they get pretty fluffy at this point in their lives which is like they're they just turned five weeks so i'm gonna have to wait until we're ready and probably make the hats the weekend that we're ready to move them into the studio so you can all expect a blog post about my chicken crafts within the next few weeks yeah there might be an interesting angle to talk about crafts developing from a more rural lifestyle too. I know my grandparents grew up in North Dakota and there were a lot of the, I think the, the making things that were done in my family were sometimes done out of necessity. I will just say they were poor. Poor people in North <laughs> Dakota making stuff to get by in life. Mm-hmm. But also like a really cool thing that I got when my grandma passed away was some embroidery done by my great grandmother embroidery and crochet and this is just really cool to see oh man we've been doing textile arts and fiber arts in my family for generations before we had access to big stores like joann's or online tutorials people were doing this because it was a source of entertainment and a source of creativity and also you know these are pillowcases probably for your home so this was a a way of decorating your house and making your your home nice and sometimes these skills were born out of actual necessity, you know, making mm-hmm. making blankets for your family, making clothes for your family. Yeah. Um, post-World War II, making clothes out of 
you know, parachutes and things yeah. like that. I think that there's a lot of ingenuity in the in the lower classes. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is when those kind of lower class crafts born out of necessity uh, get popularized into the more privileged classes mm-hmm. and become, oh, this is rural decor now. I'm going to have this $200,000 wedding with rural decor. Oh, but and it's, it's all mason jars? It's, it's all mason jars <laughs> with votive candles from Sensi, from their Sensi dealer next door. And at one point, shit just looked like this because people actually did live in rural areas. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, I had mason an jars because point. they actually had to can things. Right, right. My parents definitely canned a lot of things because that was how you had fruit in the winter. Mm-hmm in colder climates. I grew up in Montana and my parents both, well, my dad grew up on a farm. My mom grew up in a more urban environment, but then moved to North Dakota in her teenage years with her parents. Yeah, you know, canning was just kind of what you did because you had a lot of fruit in the summer. You can't eat it all. Your plum tree goes buck wild and you've got a lot of plums. <laughs> buck wild plum Sorry, plum tree. Sorry, I might have to cut cut out buck wild. Buck wild is a term I picked up from Griffin McElroy and I will try not to sound like him. No, I think... cut that part out. But I think that should be our title, I'll buck wild plum trees. Buck wild plum trees, but I... <laughs> I'll try it. Just if I overuse Buck Wild, we might have to cut out a couple okay. of them. But I picked it up from listening to four or five hours of my brother, my brother, and me, and that related content. It's so derivative. It's very derivative. Your vocabulary is derivative. It's a live show this weekend. That's why I'm wearing this shirt. I made it. This is a little up with Taco. I made this with my cry kit. Cricket. <laughs> it's a cricket, not Speaking a cricket. Speaking of buying things at Joanne's when you're in the middle of other projects. Yeah, I bought myself a cricket uh, a couple weeks ago. When I was on heavy sedatives and Vicodin, and uh, <laughs> and that's actually when we decided to do this podcast. And I'm yeah, it kind of came out of me taking a little break, getting my stomach incised, but I'm good, I'm <laughs> fine, it's healing. Uh, but yeah, we we've been friends for a while. We kind of met over a shared interest in in fiber arts. Sort of, yeah. That's that's. I, I think, think when we was... became aware of each other's uh, presence, and then we, uh... but we actually bonded more over our shared interest in feminism. We bonded over a shared interest in sexism and tech. Yeah, and an interest not in promoting it, but in yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We're promoting a matriarchal uh, tech community. <laughs> uh, no, no, we're we're more interested in diversity and inclusion in tech. So yeah, we bonded over the fiber arts thing, and then we um, wound up getting closer over the diversity and inclusion in tech stuff, which is something we're both passionate about, and in crafts. That's something I want to talk about. We're both feminists. If you're afraid of using that word, um, I, I will say this now, either we will get you comfortable with calling yourself a feminist, or you're going to stop listening to us in five. Four. Yeah. <laughs> if you're afraid of the F word, I might have a real F word for mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I guess I don't have a lot of sympathy for I don't either. anti-feminists. I don't have any patience for you people who are like, well, I believe in equal rights. I will say, but... as an 18-year-old growing up in Montana, under a more conservative background, I initially was confused by feminism and didn't see the importance. Having you're... been more in the world, and especially in the tech world... I think it's a survival. Feminism is survival. Mm. It is looking out for your own interests. It is not looking out for your own interests above the interests of men or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I don't know. Go read about it. <laughs> you I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> we're not going to explain feminism to you. Just like we're not going to... We're not going to talk about certain types of craft and art on this podcast. But, like, um, I don't think that we're very interested in talking about street art. Like, you know, and yeah, like if you want to, if you want to go learn about Banksy or something, like go buy a book at Urban Outfitters. Anna's not going to talk about Banksy. I don't want to talk you. about Banksy. I think it's really overdone. Uh, I think street art. At least in Austin, is a lot of kids writing dare on stuff, and then me going with my paint. <laughs> oh, I know so many things about solvents from being a printmaker. So me going out with my mineral spirits and like wiping down a stop sign. Have you really done that? I've really done that, wow. and we had a problem with a, a, a junior named Dare. Maybe I shouldn't give him a, sh- a shout out here. Hey, Dare. Uh, Fuck you. That's still your name. <laughs> Tagging stop signs in anyone's neighborhood. Oh, this was in Brentwood, and it was a really nice neighborhood, and, and usually it wasn't very well written. It, there was no lettering skill, and this person was just writing on stuff, and it wasn't artistic. And so, I know there are street artists that are really good. Jose Parla is one that I met that has turned into a fine artist that does some beautiful, really alphabet-like stuff where he'll do this script with the alphabet. Phenomenal stuff. But I don't know if that's an area we're going to explore so much because I think there's a lot of attention given to it and it's... I'm just tired of Banksy. I don't get it. I do love that street art is is accessible. I um, I love sculptural street art, not so much into graffiti or even murals so much. I think mm-hmm. that they're accessible and that they can be fun. But I'm not super interested in talking about them as a medium. Mm-hmm. I think it could be fun to talk about sort of politically subversive yeah. mediums from a more feminist standpoint, like like yarn bombing and stuff. I think that's kind of fun and creative. Yeah. I Although I don't necessarily like the language that we use around initiatives like this. Uh, like, uh, what is it called? Guerrilla gardening, guerrilla yarn bombing. I can't even it's remember. It's very aggro. It's, yeah, guerrilla is a military term that's inherently violent mm-hmm. and... I don't like using violent language around something that I've personally found very healing. But I get that a lot of people do use um, art as not necessarily a weapon, but as a response, um, a countercultural response to perceived violence Mm -hmm. from... As a former gardener in Central Texas, I will say my gardening style is a little aggro. But it might be aggro towards like, weeds or roots <laughs> rather than somebody else's yard. Get I'm not going to go root. like stealth bomb some tomatoes in your front yard. More, I have a Pulaski. It is the greatest tool of all. I like tools a lot. We can talk about that. But one of the finer tools I own is a Pulaski, which is a woodland fireman's axe developed in Idaho maybe a hundred years ago. And... It is the perfect thing for digging through the heavy clay soil and cutting roots. So I might go a little aggro on some of the roots while I'm trying to dig a bed, but that's just, I think, the physicality of gardening sometimes, especially in Central Texas where it's basically clay. Here it's I've it's sandy out here. It's okay. sandy, rocky. I had to do raised garden beds because I you can't dig like more than an inch below the surface here without hitting rock. I think most people have most success with gardening here with raised beds. Yeah. That seems to be the way to go. I had mixed success. I had a couple tomatoes, but man, I would be out there. And this was maybe how I, maybe the one creative thing I did when I was in grad school was I did a lot of gardening mm-hmm. uh, because I lived in a house in Brentwood 
And yeah, I would get to dig and cut roots and stuff and amend the soil and plant all these things that I would see grow. And that was really satisfying mm-hmm. to me. I had tomatillos, I had tomatoes, I had different herbs. I still have a small herb garden on my my patio. I live in an apartment now with a much smaller space, but yeah, it's not so militarized, but I will say I am an agro, I am an aggressive gardener. I'm a, I think just like with anything else, I am just like an imprecise gardener. Uh-huh. I, I have some very crowded chard right now. I, <laughs> I need to take care of that. I just throw seeds in there and I'm like, just grow, just grow wherever you're going to yeah. do it. Just do it. Um, Chaotic gardening. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Embracing the, the chaos of. I like it. Um, I think that it's like, I think gardening is a, an inherently creative pursuit as well yeah Uh, which most i i feel like most people wouldn't have thought about it that way but i i think anything where you're nurturing something into creation even if you're not like setting a pen to paper or building something from scratch yourself um i still think that gardening counts toward creative pursuits there can be a lot of planning whether it's picking what rows or what time to plant or just floral design as far as when i would go to one of the local stores here that has a a wide selection of flowers you know trying to pick out what color palette do i want Mm -hmm. to grow you know i remember one year trying to get a lot of reds and blacks and man i love black flowers they're so cool i'm not a goth no shame, uh, but it's um, just I not my style. I am a goth, no shame. It's not my style, but man, I love me some black poppies. I love poppies and peonies. I have failed to grow them here. Maybe I'll try when I live in a different climate. But, you know, just trying to pick things that will look good together and maybe an you know, alternative color scheme besides the sort of pinks and purples that, every, you know, some different colors speak to different people. Yeah, I, I want my yard to look like kind of evil. <laughs> I, I sounded like a goth, but I really was more of a punk growing up. All of the um, all of the dark flowers, I think, attract butterflies. I think they uh-huh. tend to be sweet. Um, Interesting. But I could be totally off on that. But I love the idea of talking about um, exploring color theory and how to choose color palettes. I have a few favorite tools that I use for choosing color palettes. I actually used it to choose the color palette for my chicken coop. So I'd love to talk more about that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on color theory. We could do multiple episodes on color theory. Yeah, I mean, um, you which teach people get degrees in it. This is, you know, this is an audio medium and color is a visual medium, but I think that we could still talk about it. There's a lot of math and science. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, if you look at, honestly, I think it was Gota. I don't, I'm not sure, but maybe it was Itten. I don't know. There's some people that did some serious color science. I have a few favorite resources for that as well. So Uh that could be a great episode and a great blog post. Yeah. Um, I have a few resources that I use for looking up the um, science behind the pigments of the watercolors that I choose. Mm -hmm. It does a lot of comparisons between watercolor pigments. I think um, gardening would make an interesting episode all on its own because there are so many ways that gardening can be creative. You can use it for choosing, for bringing color and texture to your garden, um, your yard, your your area, beautifying your area. You can use it for culinary purposes. Um, yeah. Finding things that uh, taste good together and look beautiful together. Um, you can use it to give back to your community, which I think um, engaging with your community is also an inherently creative 
process because whether we're showing other people our art or um, keeping it completely private, we're still creating within the context of culture. Um, so every time we make art, it's an engagement with culture and with creativity. Um, and I think that anything that gives back to our communities and engages with them in that way falls under that umbrella for me. My dad grows so many goddamn leeks. <laughs> and boy, but I guess the great thing, yeah, the fridge is full. It's overflowing. We have a cold basement, so you can put more stuff there. Uh, he does give a lot of it away because my dad, still, I guess, always a farm boy, has, we have like a 70 foot garden in Montana. Wow. And now that my brother and I have moved out of the home, it's just my mom and my dad. And my mom's sometimes like, this is a lot. We have 200 pounds of carrots and leeks. My dad loves root vegetables. Maybe it's a German thing. I don't know. Kohlrabi, <laughs> beets, leeks. But I think one of the really cool things is he, he gives a lot of that away and he passes it on. And I think that's really awesome mm -hmm. that, I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work, but he wants to share and he wants to give it, especially to people, people at their church or people in the community or people they meet. And I think that's really awesome. I am not that skilled of a gardener, but I will say the climate in Central Texas, a bit more challenging. It has its challenges. Um, they probably have different challenges. Yeah, I think that there are certain things that grow really well here, like melons um, grow amazingly here because of the hot summers. But then there are things that you can't grow as well, like cilantro will start to grow really mm -hmm. well, but then it comes up and it's like, you walk outside like two days later and like your beautiful cilantro is just like burning holes. I've had my melons bust open in the hot sun. Sometimes yeah. things that are full sun here, I think are part shade. I don't know. I'm not a professional gardener. Please don't write in telling me how, well, uh, no, we don't have any fans yet. So I don't <laughs> have to worry about rage tweets. Well, you're gardening wrong. Uh, there are people that are very skilled at it here. Um, I wasn't one of them, but it was still fun to do. I think there's a good physicality to it too that helps me burn energy. I remember actually before I started Kung Fu, I think it was, I was climbing, it was, it was what I would call aggressive gardening and I was trying to remove some dead branches from a wild shrub and I was climbing into it and breaking out dead branches. And my roommate told me, you need to find something to do with your energy. And I did Kung Fu for a while and that helps. But I think my dad does the same thing too. Sometimes you're just a, you just got a lot of energy and you gotta, spend it on something and, and doing something with your hands is both creative in a artistic fulfilling way but also in a this helps me direct my direct that intensity my intensity into a thing that i can just hone in on i think that would be execute. a great point to bring up in our um, episode on mental illness and it doesn't even have to be a focus on mental illness but um any anything where personality disorders mental illnesses general exhaustion general maladaptive issues um anything that holds you back how you can channel that through artistic endeavors and yeah and it helps it it takes the edge off a lot of things like that so i think that'd be a great thing to bring up as a person with anxiety and a lot of intensity having a place to channel that energy is really essential and you can have both. You, oh. know, you can be a person with mental illness and very successful at your art without obliterating your mental illness or wiping. There's a sweet spot in where I guess there's a myth that, that if you cure your mental illness, you will um, not be creative anymore. Mm -hmm. The sort of 
Reiner Maria Rilke said, you know, I'm afraid if you drive out my demons, you'll drive out my angels too. Uh, this is a German poet. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's a matter of dosage. You know, if you want to be a person with mental illness that gets treatment or, or takes medication, sure, there are medications and dosages that will wipe you out. Uh, that's not a good effective treatment. If you were massively unhappy, you would not be creating much. So taking care of yourself is important. or DIY trying. We can workshop it, but it's going to be about craft fails. We don't want to single out small-time crafters. We don't want to single out, you know, We don't want to be people. mean. We don't want to be mean with this. But humor sometimes, well, here's the thing. There are things on Pinterest that are just viral advertising grabs. Viral click, garbage. Click grabs that are meant to, I guess, get people's attention. But maybe the, maybe the instructions aren't super good. Maybe... Garbage crafts. Garbage crafts. I don't know. This We're going to try to not be shaming teens on DeviantArt and more just shaming things that just might not be a good idea. Okay, like what have you found? So I have a, a, a <laughs> Pinterest board that that we can talk about a little bit. I've collected oh a couple bad crafts in the few years. Is that SpaghettiO in Aspic? Yeah, this would be God. a SpaghettiO in Vienna weenie Aspic, which just... I'm not a big fan of aspects. I think that's more of the 60s, 70s mm -hmm. cookbook trend. I guess I'm not a fan of gelatinous foods. Yeah. But um, this doesn't seem like a thing that, that I want to make or eat. I I actually really like SpaghettiOs. I, mm -hmm. well, not SpaghettiOs. I don't want to buzz market SpaghettiOs. I don't like you SpaghettiOs. Linguinios. <laughs> um, I, okay, I, I eat a lot of Anios and... They're oh like yeah little, yeah they're the, the little stars ones. of well yeah there are those and then there are the all-stars and um yeah the bunny ones are they're called bernios i think they're named after her bunny but they look more like frank from um donnie darko but would you want to eat them that's the second in a jello mold no and see now the thing is i don't want to eat them ever again cold and i think a couple things i've pinned and i started making this board before um 70s dinner party was a popular Twitter account. Wait, that's creamed tuna in in aspic? I yeah. thought that was hummus out of the corner of my eye. No, that would be creamed tuna. I think hummus is a little too exotic for this time period. <laughs> and then I have something here that's called menopausal supermodel. But it's it like is a um it is a crab centipede made out of crab shells. I don't know what I don't know what's happening up in just what, wait, okay, so what is, is that lobster? Is that like I a lobster tree? I think there's a tree? lobster tree that's made with, is it broccoli? Is it kale? That looks like kale. It looks like kale, oh. and it's arranged into a tree with the lobsters hanging down. To the left is a separate photo where a bunch of 
whole crabs are arranged That's in a centipede form. Can we make this? Uh, do you wanna? Do you wanna have our first? <laughs> make I could make that make fan meetup. Have um <laughs> for all of our fans. Yeah, I think out, we might be on seventies dinner party territory though. Mm-hmm. But still, these things I knew about them because I had this cookbook for my German class from the sixties or seventies. It was the Etke home cookbook, and I had the the English and the German version. But it was a lot of aspic. It was a lot of vegetables stacked into cakes. Yeah, it was not nothing. There's a reason I gave this cookbook away is because this was not the kind of food I wanted to make. Okay, so let's talk about um, this. Uh, <laughs> what what would be the word for this? Sacrilegious? Sacrilegious? I don't know. Uh, so, say I'm an ex-Catholic here looking at this. This is labeled tiny baby piggy Jesus. Let the record show that Anne and I are looking at a Pinterest project of a pig in a blanket. It looks like a little... Um, like a little little tiny sausage wrapped up in like a crescent roll um, on top of some old french fries which have been laid out to look like hay in a barn and then pretzel sticks form the walls and ceiling of this barn with a star on top i don't know what the star is made out of is it's that a, a cracker star fruit. It's star oh is that star fruit okay so they actually do have real food on here yeah this is a, um, a baby swaddled baby in the manger this Nativity is this is craft. the baby in the barn so to speak this yeah is, i will now see on the with the link here it's a montessori moments blog spot so maybe i don't <laughs> want to took too much shade at a bunch of preschoolers as a Montessori alum myself. Do you think a preschooler did this? Do you think a preschooler did this? I think an adult this? did this. And as an ex-Catholic, I don't like to be eating Jesus unless he's in transubstantiated form. So <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. Did they Actually, feed as an ex-Catholic, this to a baby? As an ex-Catholic, I don't take the body of Christ anymore. What is but, the... Okay, what is the general age range for Montessori? It's preschool. Okay, so they fed uh, french fries and a pig in a blanket and pretzels and a tiny sliver of starfruit to a baby. I guess it's trying to get kids excited about the nativity story. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great, you know. The thing is, though, you, it makes them you, unexcited you. about food for the rest of their lives. You think so? This looks horrifying. And I, I mean, I just admitted that I like to eat um, spaghetti as well. It's all basically carbs, though. It, it's uh, carbs, this is pretty a much... little bit of protein, and a tiny bit of fruit. Tiny baby piggy Jesus. And those... I, think, I think I wrote that. <laughs> tiny baby piggy Jesus. You actually did write that. I did write that. I, when did I say this? I wish it told me. Well, you know, it's, it's different. It's out there. Um... You should mark the tried it section. Tried it. Tried it button. Tried it. We haven't tried it yet. How'd it How'd go? It go? Oh, well, this great. is a new feature. So here's one thing I noticed with Pinterest is, yeah, a lot of people post ideas. You know, my friend Shannon has a young child, and when her, her little girl was, I think, about three, they decided to do Easter egg dyeing, and they found a really cool idea on Pinterest that was, hey, let's do marbled Easter eggs. You basically get a baking pan, you fill it with shaving cream and food dye, and you just kind of swirl it and you get this really cool marbled effect. And it had, you know, the one, two, three steps and the nice picture at the end. Here's what happened. Three-year-old probably still had a blast because you're just making a mess. But these eggs, they just kind of smelled like like man. And they were just kind of greasy and they smelled... Man eggs. Like, like man fragrance. 
and grease <laughs> and no color stuck to the eggs. Are you talking about bio, like that oniony? No, thing? no, I'm talking about like the old spice type. Oh, um, I believe they're called uh, sheep, sheep, <laughs> C H Y P R E, sheep, sheepers, fougere. Anyway, they have bay rum. They have a lot of bay rum and tons of alcohol. Oh, anyway. you mean the like the actual oils and notes in this. Yeah. Anyway. It's the accords. This craft did not go well, and I don't think it was my friend's fault, and it definitely wasn't her three-year-old's fault. It was because some people on Pinterest just put things up for clicks, and they don't actually talk about how they work. Yeah, so this viral Pinterest crap isn't tested, and these don't actually work. So it's cool to see that Pinterest is responding with a, tried it, how'd it go? Let's say delicious. Am I, I going to get excommunicated for this? I No, I fed this to my... Oh, dang it! I wanted to leave a really elaborate backstory oh. about what happened when well, we tried it. Can, oh, you can just it. go to... Okay. Um, I fed this to my Montessori... Oh, shit, I'm bad at this. I fed this to my Montessori <laughs> llama. Um, <laughs> and uh, she got <laughs> she got really nauseated. Do you know about Montessori? Because Montessori is actually really a cool thing. That it's a lot about. <laughs> but, um, Montessori is a lot of kids actually doing crafts and hands-on things. But I thought it would be cute if a Montessori had a llama. I, I think it would be excellent. Um, as long as it didn't spit. But I tried this and I really liked it. The llama spit it out. I'm going to capitalize. I really liked it. I really liked it. <laughs> Add a photo. Uh, what do I have? <laughs> Upload a llama. Upload a picture of a yeah, llama. Yeah, let's... We'll... Um, this is our Montessori llama. Name it MontessoriLlama.jpg. I got a llama with a little, little head, head scruff going. If we had a llama and we were feeding it that many carbs, it would be a much fatter it's llama. Kind of a lot of, I think we'll come back to... We can add a photo of MontessoriLlama.jpg okay. later. Do we want to talk a little bit more about the board? Or do we want to go back? I think it would be fun to have a version that we shared with people, but I think it would have to, like, we'd have to make sure that there was nothing, like, super amazingly horrifying Mm -hmm. on here. Speaking of horrifying, do you want your cat playing with a crocheted bloody tampon? Um, I don't think I'd actually care that much, um, because it wouldn't last long. Um, but I don't think that I love the idea of it. I don't know. I guess... My dog did like my tampons a lot when I was yeah, growing up. Yeah, there's, the, there's the rub is... Ah, there's the rub. There's the rub. Uh, do you... Six shakes your reference, is it, bro. Is it a... Is it a real tampon or the craft tampon? And now what has your cat done? I've never had my cat play with... This is getting quickly disgusting. Or do we want a mature rating on this podcast? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying this is a craft that... It may appeal to some, does not appeal to me. There's also the bag of dicks. That is cat toy, definitely way more where of a mature. Your cat plays with a crocheted phallus. I don't really want my cat playing with a dick, mainly just because I don't like. I just don't think dicks are that important. Like, yeah. sorry guys, but your dick's not that important. And I feel like um, if I were going to have them play with anything, it would probably just be like a little. Um, fish toy. Because that's Honestly, classic. I'm afraid I'm, my cat would destroy it. Destroy and the peen? I don't know how I would feel about... I mean, 
I just think it would quickly get into a sadistic horror show. Ultimate feminist dick-destroying yeah. cat. Yeah. Because that's all we want to do, guys, is just That's what feminism is about. Penises. Uh, the Crisco candle, for sure. Put a piece of string in a tub of Crisco, and it will burn for up to 45 days. I mean, this might be a... Sounds dangerous. A survival technique for the apocalypse? Which, mm. I, there's no shame in that. I feel like, though, if you're in, the, in an apocalyptic situation, what is the merit of burning that much lard over a period of 45 days for very minimal light when you could actually eat it for energy to convert the calories into energy? Maybe. I'm not a Crisco fan. I, uh, the only thing I use it for is seasoning my cast iron pans. If I make a pie, it's with butter or lard. That's where I'm at. But yeah, you know, Yankee Candles ain't that expensive. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of I Could Make That. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if even if you've hated it really, um, reach out to us on Twitter, hashtag I Could Make That. We'd love to have a conversation with you. We are going to be producing this podcast every two weeks, so look forward to a new episode. All right, we'll see y'all in a few weeks. Bye!